Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, you good? Is anybody who was on work day really sore today? Had some people who needed some help tying their shoes today? Some of you know what that feels like. I got a question for you. How many of you grew up as a kid liking building things? Is that something that you did? Always building forts, always building little houses. How many of you remember Lincoln Logs? Do you remember these? Yeah, there's some good feelings there. Lincoln Logs are old. There are, are several generations back with Lincoln Logs. I loved as a kid building with Lincoln Logs. One of my favorite toys, part of it is they're incredibly satisfying when they settle into place. It's just like, unlike anything else, it just sets perfectly. They got overtaken by the Lego company, which, you know, when I was a kid, you just had a big bucket of miscellaneous pieces, and you just, you know, you made stuff, and it didn't look like anything, really, but it just, it was something. Now you buy these kits, and they're really expensive, and they made Lego movies, and I'm convinced if there was a Lincoln Log movie that these would come back to the center of culture. I think they belong there. I love the little roofs and the little chimneys that go on them. I love Lincoln Logs. How many of you love playing? (laughs) Have a good day. That was surprising. Um, (laughs) How many of you like playing with Legos? Do any of you do that as adults? Some of you do. It's a thing. I've never sat in a day and said, you know what, I think I want to build Legos right now, but my kids do. And if I sit down with my kids to play with Legos for a minute, as soon as my hands touch them, I'm hooked because I love building things. And it's not long. We'll get there and I'm start clicking. I'm just kind of talking to them. And then suddenly I'm focused here. And then I'm fighting my own kids for Lego pieces because I need that piece. I'm building something here, right? And we're all arguing about who gets what pieces because we're all building things. Do you know that God is also into building things? Did you know that? You know what God loves to build the most? He loves to build people. God loves to build into the lives of people. He loves to build into people purpose where there was no purpose before. He loves to build security into people's lives where they didn't feel secure. God loves to build peace into places in people's lives where they had nothing but anxiety and fear and worry overtaking them. God loves building into people. And if we want to be into what God is into, then we're going to be into building other people's lives. Not building our own kingdom, not building up my own life, but building into others. You with me? You follow me? There's another thing God loves building. Did you know God loves building a family? From the very beginning of the Bible and all the way through to the end, God is about building a family for himself. It's building his family, and he calls his family the church. And in fact, we have this moment in Matthew 16 with Jesus where he's with his disciples, and he says to them, okay, I've been out on the streets for a little bit. I've been talking. I've been teaching. I've been doing things. What do people say about me? Who do they say that I am? And so the disciples begin to give a report, and some of them say, well, you know, I've heard some people say that really you're just John the Baptist, kind of in disguise, or you're, you're, you're him again. And we've heard some other people saying that you're some kind of weird reincarnation maybe of Elijah or of Jeremiah. They've thrown out some prophets' names that you're a reincarnation of one of the prophets who's come to tell us more things about God. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, okay, that's that's nice. But who do you say that I am? What about you? What do you think? And the point of his questioning really wasn't to to find out what do people out there think about me. Jesus kind of understood where he stood with people and what they were thinking about him. Jesus' point in the questioning was to begin to draw his disciples in from a place where groupthink is overtaken to a place where they begin to come closer and closer to the truth. And Jesus says, okay, what about you disciples? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the saving one. You're the Messiah. You're the rescuer. Come for us. You are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Berjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. No one told you this in a small group. You didn't read it in a book, but you have had the revelation from my father in heaven. Blessed are you because you have listened and you've seen I also say to you that you are Peter. And he gives him a nickname. He had been known as Simon. And God, or at this moment, Jesus gives him a nickname that represents the confession that he's just given. And that name in Aramaic, Jesus would have said, now you're Cephas. 
And the New Testament was written in Greek originally. It's Petros, and it means rock or little rock. It says, now you're a little rock because you have built your life upon this confession that I am the saving one, and I am the son of the living God. And he says, upon this rock, this big rock of who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And what is the it that's highlighted there? It's the church, right? Jesus says, this is what I'm about. I'm about building my church, the family of God, the kingdom of God. I've been sent to do this. I'm here to build my church. In other words, Jesus is not simply here just to save you and me just individually. He does love you and me individually. He does save you and me individually. But even more so, Jesus is about taking a people and bringing them together under his kingship, under his lordship that will be the family of God. He wants to save you, not just get you across some barely saved line where you go, well, I identify as a believer. More than that, Jesus wants you to be brought into a family and to build you up together into a beautiful family for the glory of God, that he would have a big, beautiful, powerful, all alive, fully alive family for God's glory. That's what Jesus really is about. It's not just about building up you and me and your kingdom and my kingdom, but it's about a family that Jesus is intent on building. I will build my church. And this is the thing that was on Jesus's mind and it was filling his heart. It's coming out in his prayers as he's facing the worst moment he's ever experienced before his arrest and his torture and his crucifixion. This is what's on his mind. Desire, not for relief from the trouble that he's about to go through. He knows of the pain that he's about to, to deal with. He's not praying, Father, would you please remove the pain? I don't want to go. He says, Father, would you please? And he begins to pray with desire for his church. And so if you grab your Bible, turn to John 17. That's where we are again. It's our fourth week in John 17. We're learning from the, the personal prayer life of, of Jesus himself in just an awful moment. And he's bearing his soul before his father with his disciples surrounded around him. And we've learned this. We saw that Jesus, as he prays, he reveals that he has a deep confidence in the divine timetable. That he really understands and believes that the Father's hands on, are on everything. His eye is on everything that's happening on this earth. And he trusts his Father in heaven, whether it be life or death, whatever it is. He's confident that God's got this. We saw the next week that as he prays, he prays with desire that, that people would have eternal life. And that eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus as Savior. And we saw that it's really a deep desire of Jesus that people who are Christians would know that you know your place with God. You feel secure in your salvation. It's coming out in his prayers. Last week, Pastor Justin was here, and he talked to us about how Jesus uh, is praying to his Father that the things that Jesus did with his disciples while he was walking on earth with them, he was taking care of them, he was teaching them, he was giving grace and mercy, he was raising them up, that as he would face the cross and face resurrection and ascend, those things would not stop with his crucifixion and resurrection, but they would continue. That the Father would keep doing the same things that the Son would do with his careful watch over the disciples and by the Holy Spirit's power continue to help them grow in his grace. And this is what we read last week. Father, I pray that you will keep them. You're not going to let them fall now that I'm going uh, above, but keep them alive and fully alive and make them more so and more so each day. And today, the part that we get to is maybe the most exciting part of Jesus' prayer in John 17 because you and I are in it. it, it that, and that sounds weird. You go, my name's not here, but you and I are in this prayer. Jesus prayed for us, not just for the 11 faithful disciples, but he prayed for us too. And I want you to see this in verse 20. Jesus says, I don't ask these things on behalf of just these alone. These are gathered around me right now. But I ask all these things for those also who believe in me through their word. In other words, that includes us who have believed the testimony of these 11 faithful disciples. 2,000 years later, it's passed on and on and on. And the reason we build our lives upon Jesus and his identity and his purposes in this world is because we have believed this word. And so Jesus prays for you and for me, those of us who have come to believe in him, who have come to rest in him because of the word of the disciples. He's praying for you. He's praying for our church. And this is what he prays. Verse 21. I pray that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. And we'll stop there. We'll pick up next week the last few verses of the, the chapter, but we'll stop here because there's a, a definite theme that's being repeated. Do you see the theme? In verse 21, it says that they may all be one. And then 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may be perfected in what? In unity. He's praying for oneness, that we would experience a deep and abiding, almost mysterious kind of unity, that we would be perfected in it, that we would be one. Jesus, as he's facing these last days with his disciples and he's facing awful things, his mind is not even as he prays for us on our health, that we would never have a sick day, that we would never have to face a cross and face the troubles that he's facing. He's not praying for our successes, that everything that we wish to do would always go our way and we would never have problems. And he's not praying for our happiness, the thing that burdens Jesus in this time. He prays for our unity. And that's because unity is the binding agent that pulls together and holds together everything that Jesus is building for his church. It is the thing among generations and seasons and geography and, and changing cultures that will bind this beautiful church. And without it, we won't experience the, the beauty or the power or the wonder of being truly the family of God and experiencing it in the way that he desires us to. It's not praying that we would be bound together by good programs or good preaching, good songs or any other thing that we would come up with. But he's praying that we would stick because of a deep and abiding and beautiful unity. And this morning I want to explore that unity. And I want to understand in particular what kind of unity is it that Jesus desires for us to have. Because did you know that not all unity is good unity? You, you realize that, right? Not, not all unity is good unity. Unity be, can be given to good or can be given to bad. It's not innately or inherently good. I'll give you some examples of bad unity. Think about Genesis 11. God looks down upon the earth and he finds that people have lined up together. They are of one mind. They're in one accord that they would build a tower, the Tower of Babel. And this was not to glorify God. It was not to build a deeper and more abiding relationship with the Lord. But this was in a way to try to use God without an understanding of who he is at all, to try to use him for their own benefits. That they would have a connection to God so that everyone else would know that they are special people. That they would be glorified, not that God would be glorified. It's selfish. It's a bad kind of unity. They were all in it together, but it was not good. It was a bad unity. Give another example. Herod and Pilate and the Pharisees were all of one mind in the scorn of Jesus. It was good, ultimately, in God's providence that Jesus would suffer and die and resurrect for us. But it was bad where Pilate and Herod were in agreement. They became friends in this act. And the Pharisees were in agreement. We're going to torture and destroy this man and obliterate him. They were in unity against our Lord. It's bad unity. Does that make sense? And churches can, and, and many do today, and we can do this too. We can try to build unity and give it over to bad things that are not God-honoring and not life-giving, but they're just things that we have set our minds on. It's a danger. Now, there's good unity, on the other hand. There's like where Paul and Silas are in prison. They are being, I mean, their lives are being threatened. They're, they're dealing with a natural disaster at the same time as being persecuted. The kinds of things that would typically tear people apart where we go, this is just too much. I can't bear it anymore. And people begin turning their backs on each other. And yet, what are they doing? They're sitting in prison and they're praising God for his presence and his faithfulness. And they continue just to declare their fidelity to the Lord together, right? It's a good unity. And the reason I tell you this is because it is not enough for us just to call out to Christians, you should all be unified, all be, be, all be one. It's enough just to say that because that might be given over to good or to bad things. But the unity that Jesus prays for in John 17, and it's worked out throughout the New Testament, finds its goodness in a combination of its source, of its affections, of its views, and of its aims. You hear me? It's a combination of its source, its views, its affections, and its aims. So if you're a note taker, there's four things we're going to see in Jesus' prayer and unpack throughout the New Testament as the New Testament underlines what Jesus has prayed. And first, it's that the unity that Jesus desires for us is a unity that is found in the Trinity. It's found in the Trinity, in the inner life of the triune God, and it's given 
by the Holy Spirit. This is the source of the unity that Jesus prays for, for you and for me, for our church, for every church that seeks to, to bow before Jesus. He prays for a unity that's found within the Trinity and given by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21. Again, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I are in you. That they may be one, just as we are one. He's giving us a peek at the inner life of, of the triune God. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Jesus is praying for a supernatural unity that already exists, that has always existed between Father, Spirit, and Son. It doesn't come from external sources. It doesn't come from systems or protocols or from, from good organization and communication on our behalf. But he prays the church would experience a unity that already exists within the Trinity is being shared through uh, the, our relationship to Jesus and given by the Holy Spirit to us. It's because we're, we're partakers of the divine nature. Do you remember our study of 2 Peter last year? We were told in 2 Peter 1 that if you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you have been given everything. Somebody say everything. You've been given everything that you will ever need to face anything that life can throw at you and do it in a way that is in line with the Lord, that walks with the Lord. Everything that you need for life and godliness has been provided to you in Christ. How is that? Well, it's because you become partakers or participants of the divine nature. Remember Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Remember, you're, you're no longer your own. Don't you know that your, your, your body is a temple of the living God, the Holy Spirit, right? Because we are so intimately, spiritually connected to God in this way, we are participants in everything that God is inside of himself. And God is unified with glorifying love being poured out between Father, Son, and Spirit within the one God at all times. And when we come to be in Christ, it's possible for us to experience this for ourselves. Let me give you a, a picture uh, of this. The unity that Jesus is praying for is not uniformity. So what that means, it means we don't all have to look alike and sound alike and like the same things, have the same hobbies, have grown up in the same areas, have the same preferences. We don't all have to vote the same way. It's not uniformity, which makes sense if this unity that Jesus wants us to have comes from within the triune God where Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, and yet there's distinctly Father, Son, and Spirit, right? Unity is not uniformity. Show you this. Unity is also not unanimity. In other words, we have to agree on everything that is thought between everyone in this room and everyone who belongs to this church. Remember last year we talked about finding the right hills to die on. Do you remember this? Some of you read that, that book. We learned how there are essential matters of belief that make you orthodox, that, that are, are very clearly defined in the Bible. And if we are to be in Christ and to be Bible-believing church, then we have to agree upon some essential things. But there are a lot of things that are secondary or tertiary, where there's some room for disagreement in how we go about these things or, or what these things mean, and yet they should not divide us. We can have unity even if we don't agree on every detail of everything that could happen in this world. It's not unanimity that Jesus is praying for. He's not saying, I pray that everyone would agree on everything and think the way and feel the same way about everything that happens. This unity is also not sentimentality where we just want to have good vibes and good feels all the time and, and we just want to pretend like everything's okay and the stuff that seeks to divide us or the things that threaten our unity, we just kind of push them down and hide them and gloss over them and pretend like they're not there so we can just smile and say, everything's fine, I'm fine, you're fine, we're all fine, right? This isn't the unity that Jesus prays for at all. Uh, yet, when I look at it, our church and any church and any group that we might be a part of, don't you see how often the unity that we're seeking to have is a unity that's built on much more earthbound stuff? It's a unity that is, is built upon like political leanings. Oh, are you a little more right or a little more left? Because my people are a little more here or a little more here. And that matters. That matters, you know, who I will spend time with, who I will break bread with, and, and who I will worship with matters about where, where you're voting. Or we'll try to build unity based upon uh, just affinity. Like, well, I'm a, we're the running church. We, we all, we go running. Or we're the CrossFit church. Or, you know, we're the, we're the nice church. There's the cool church down the street, but we're the nice church, right? 
and we will build unity on all, all of these different kinds of things. I'm in this club, you're in this club. Okay, we can all club together. And it's all earthbound and it's all temporal stuff. And so it really doesn't have a sticking power. It just doesn't. Life is changing. Life is growing. Things come in our way. And this stuff isn't enough to stick us together. And it's not beautiful. And it's not powerful. And because it's earthbound and temporary, it's so easy for us to slide from something that is focused upon God and his goodness and compassion and his glory to be focused just on me and the things that I want and things that make me feel good, which aren't always the same thing. Is that news to you today? It's not always the same thing there. So easy to slide away from being a focus on God and his goodness and what he deeply desires for us to experience, which is being fully alive when we're trying to be unified on earthbound and temporary things. It doesn't reflect God's glory and it moves us apart. Jesus prays this, that we would have a unity that is based upon having a shared life in Christ. That our unity would be based upon the fact that we've come to know Jesus as the king of the universe who gave his life that we could be a part of the family of God, that we come to be a part of the building that he is making called his church, that it's us. It's a unity that already exists within the Trinity. It's a unity that he desires for us to experience. And that's why Paul would pick it up in Ephesians 4 and he would say, I want you to be eager. I want you to be diligent to preserve or to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And I take that to mean that the Holy Spirit is the great giver of this unity, that it's found within the Trinity and the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised would come and be our helper. He's the one who pours out this unity and binds us together. And this is why 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says this, the Holy Spirit takes all of this diversity that we have and he, he works it together, verse uh, 13 of 1 Corinthians 12. For by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, we, if we're in Christ, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, that stuff really doesn't matter. Why? Because we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Or in other words, we have all kinds of differences, all kinds of backgrounds and stories. Some of it's baggage and some of it is just absolute gifting to be shared. But we bring it all together and we come together, not based on any of that stuff, but we come together because of the unity given to us by the Holy Spirit. And that's why Paul says in, in Ephesians 4 that we've got to be diligent to preserve that. It's there. The Holy Spirit's already given it. He's bound us together because he's indwelling us if we're in Christ, right? And Paul says you've got to be diligent to preserve it, to maintain it, to not let it go away because facts are stuff is always trying to eat away at it. And that gives us that, that, that beautiful metaphor that is a biblical truth that the church is one body that we're a body. And you've heard me or someone else preach about the church being a body. And it's like, well, am I a left toe or a right ear? And you go, how do I fit within the, within the body? How many of you know this, though, that when the body is sick, when there's something wrong in my physical body, it's because something isn't functioning the way that God designed and desires for it to function. You realize that? And when a church is sick, it's because we are not living according to the way God designed or he desires us to function. And a sick church is not a fully alive church. And a sick church cannot help a sick world. Do you know that? Right? Jesus prays that we would have this incredible, mysterious, beautiful, powerful, sticky unity that is found within the Trinity. It's not found from some external source. It's found within the Godhead and it's given to us by the Holy Spirit. That's one aspect of this particular kind of unity. The second thing he prays, or his prayer reveals, is that this unity is fueled by minds set on Jesus and guided by God's words. You hear that? It's fueled by minds that are set on Jesus and guided by God's words. And if you peek back to John 17 earlier in our study a few weeks ago, we saw how much the word of God plays a vital role in actually walking with God and knowing God for who he is and being fully alive with them. We'll peek back to verse 6. It says, I've manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. Jesus is praying this. He says, they kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. Why? For the words. The words which you gave me, I gave them those words. They received those words. And by those words, they truly understood that I came from you and they believed 
Because of your words, that divine gift you have spoken to us, they believe that you sent me. And we're still trying to organize around everyone having a common opinion about everything that's happening in the world. You want to talk about culture wars? You want to talk about politics? You want to talk about personal problems? Well, let me see if we can build some unity on all having the same view and opinion on, on those things. And that's weak. And it's broken. And it will, it will never work. Because usually what happens is we just build an echo chamber or an ecosystem of our own ideas, right? That, that's called, um, also called Facebook, by the way. An echo chamber or an ecosystem of our own ideas where we're spewing what we think and we're finding people who are spewing the same kinds of things that we think and all of it falls short because our perspective and understanding of all of it falls short. And so surrounding ourselves with people who we're unified with because we uh, happen to have the same predisposed thought patterns about certain activities or ideas in this world is broken and it's weak. So again, we go to Ephesians 4 and we find what Paul is saying. He's saying that when you become a Christian, you not only are now a believer and you are forgiven and you are welcomed into the family of God, but at that same moment, you're given spiritual gifting. That, that you're given gift in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. According to the measure of Christ, you're given spiritual gifting and it's diverse giving. And the purpose of that gifting given to you, every Christian the purpose of it is, verse, 13, verse 12, it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Again, God loves building things. And here we find we're part of the building process. We're on the construction crew. And what are we building? This is verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity. We're building unity. That's why we're given diverse giftings. That's why it's beautiful that God brings all of these stories and these lives and the baggage and the gifting all together. And he shakes us all up together because when we come together and we're unified in one spirit, what happens is we begin to build this deeper kind of unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we are seeking to preserve and to be diligent to maintain a unity of faith. Our minds and our hearts and our lives are in line with Jesus. The way he sees, the way he feels, and what he's seeking to do to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation and beauty into a broken world. We're to be diligent to use everything that he's given us to be a part of the building process until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of, of Jesus, the Son of God. And Paul he just goes on and on and builds, piles up words to depict what it means to have a unified mind set on Christ and guided by God's word. Philippians 2, 2, look at this. Make my joy complete. This is how you'd make me the happiest I've ever been. This is how I would be most satisfied in my soul if you would be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, unified in the spirit, intent on one purpose. I mean, there's goals I have for you, Church of Philippi. I'd love to see you plant, you know, 15 churches and send some missionaries over to Colossae and do these things. The thing most of all I want is for you to be a unified church. Not, not like sentimentality, not uniformity, not unanimity, but you would just you deeply abide in one another. And it'd be beautiful and powerful in Philippi. And he knows there are challenges. He knows there are problems. He knows that there's one fight at least already happening in the church at Philippi. Two women are in a dispute. And so chapter 4, verse 2, he says, look, this is what you need to do. I urge you, just live in harmony with one another. Don't just press down the problems, but seek that unity and the spirit and the bond of peace. Like that will overwhelm. It will overwhelm everything that seeks to divide you if you will trust the power of God at work in your life to bring deep and, and satisfying, soul-satisfying unity by being of the same mind, of the same love, of the same purpose. Cast everything else aside and love this. Romans uh, 15, 5 Paul says, now may the God who gives you perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Colossians 3, have your mind set on things above, not on things below, and keep seeking things above. Colossians 3, that is how we have minds set on Christ and guided by God's word. And, and the problem is, some of us, we have so many other things that we've set our minds on, and we didn't realize we were doing it. We just did it because of habit. Habits build quickly. With repetition, we build habits. 
and our minds are set on things that we didn't intend our minds to be set on and our, our views are being guided by these things and, and we need to let go of those things so that our minds could truly be set on, on Christ and his desire for us and his desire in the world. So some of us probably need to turn off Fox News and some of us probably need to turn off CNN. Some of us need to drop the Twitter feed. Like that would have been a good thing to give up for Lent. I'm gonna give up the Twitter feed that is actually destroying my life tweet by tweet and I just didn't realize it. Or maybe I need to leave some Facebook groups that I'm in because my mind, my views are being set and guided by these things rather than by the one who loves us so deeply and knows us better than we know ourselves and wants for us more than we could ever imagine, even if we were told. Yeah? Yeah. The fuel of church unity is having minds set on Christ and guided by his word. There's a third thing Jesus reveals in his prayer here, that this particular kind of unity only grows in the context of love. You hear that? It grows when we choose love. And you can sense, even when you just read the prayer alone, if you didn't have the rest of the Gospels, if you didn't have the rest of the Bible to tell you how much God loves you, you can sense the love Jesus has for his disciples simply by reading his prayer. In, in verse 12, remember all of the failures of the disciples? Like they couldn't get it right, it seems like at any point. They kept saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things, acting like fools. And yet Jesus in verse 12 says, I was with them. I was fully present with them. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. That means I was preserving them in connection with all that it is to be near God. I was keeping them near to God. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your truth. I was keeping them bound up in your name. I guarded them and I wanted all of my joy to be full in them. I wanted to share all of the joy that exists within me, the joy who, 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 which brought me and kept me to the cross. It's pretty powerful joy. I wanted that joy to be in them and be full, like John 15 says. I say this because I see this a lot. You can find churches who believe that they are unified because the Spirit has brought them together and they've ended up in the same room under the same mission statement and they've come together and they have maybe the same doctrine guiding them and they'll look at their church and they'll go, we're a unified church. Why? Well, because we're in the same place and we have sound teaching. That makes us unified. And yet that same church might have no love for one another, no grace for one another, no compassion for the hurts that other people are experiencing. No presence with one another. Not real presence, maybe in rows, but not really present when, when it counts. Or even when you're in rows, not really fully present with the people who, who are your church. We can have oh, the same room and the same mission statement and, and the same doctrine, but not have love. And that unity will be fragile and will break so easily without that. That's why one pastor said this, to be sure, Unifying love in the body of Christ includes, I love this, a rugged commitment to do good for the family of God, whether you feel like it or not. Some of us need to like tattoo that on the inside of our eyelids or something. A rugged commitment to do good to the family of God, doesn't matter what you feel like. You've given yourself over to this. And that's biblical. Galatians 6 says this. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity... So right now, now is when we have the opportunity. Let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of God. But I want you to understand something, that, that, that Christian unity is not just sacrificial love. It's not just, I'm going to grind it out until my dying day for these people. But it also is an affection. And, and this is frequent throughout. Check, check this out. Be devoted to one another in grinding it out. Even if you don't like them and you're mad at them. Because you have to. Now, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And builds. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from, from the heart. Keep going for me here. Colossians, I love this one. Beyond all these things, it tells us all these things that we should be doing as, as people who are in Christ, the way to live, the way to walk, the way to think. It says, but beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body and be thankful for it, be grateful for it. There's a brotherly affection. There's a familial love that we're to have for one another. Yes, 
a grinded out sacrificial love. Yes, in agape, I will love you because the love of God is in me and it's unconditional. But there's even an affection that we should begin to have with one another. It's like, do you have the peace of God in your life? Do you feel that sometimes? Yeah, well, yeah. Do you, do you have the love of God in your life? Do you feel that sometimes? Yeah. Do you, do you feel like you have love for God sometimes? Do you, do you love God? Do you realize that all of that is not something that you're just supposed to keep to yourself, but that's something that's supposed to transfer or translate into the relationships that you have with the church with whom you belong? Right? What, what does this look like? Let me show you a chart I made. There are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. I only fit this many on the page, so deal with it. I'm sorry. Here's some, one, some of the one another statements of the New Testament. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Instruct one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another. This is the stuff of, of, of love. This is the stuff of committed love. This is the stuff of faithful love. This is the stuff of, yes, agape, but also phileo, of, of brotherly love. This is the stuff that makes it happen. But there's another list. Check this out. They're the anti-one another's. And these are maybe as frequent or not, or maybe more frequent than even these in, inside the church. And they're nitpicking each other to death rather than being at peace with one another. How many of us live our lives right there? You could stop and say, okay, guilty, I'm done. There's be apathetic toward one another. How many of you know the opposite of loving one another isn't really hating one another? It's just having no care at all for someone, from someone else, right? It's saying, I, I don't even really know their names. I don't even really know their stories. I don't. I got a lot going on. It doesn't really matter to me, right? It's apathy. Uh, be silently judgy. You know you can be judgy without saying it out loud. You know that. It happened the second you woke up this morning. The first person you saw, you started judging them, right? You can be silently judgy. Uh, how about this? Learn, but don't share with one another. Do a Bible study. Pray before the Lord. Seek his counsel. Seek his wisdom. Meet with God. Meet with a friend. Learn amazing things about life with God, but don't ever tell anyone else about it. Teach one another or, or keep it to yourself. Instead of serving one another, serving yourself, I'm here for me. Give me what I need. Give me what I want because i got places to go. Or think when, it, when other people are going through other things, that's not really my problem. It's not my problem, it's their problem, you know, that, not in my family, I don't owe them anything, it's not my deal. Maybe even it was their fault, and we go, well, you know, they got themselves in that situation, and consequences, right? Not my problem. And then, instead of encouraging one another, depress one another. And I, listen, I was guilty of this during the pandemic season, my goodness. I, I told my staff about eight months ago, I was like, I, it's in August, I, I set them down, I was like, look, I have not held you up in the way I could have or should have in this season. I have grumbled and complained and felt depressed about things that are going on. I've struggled with my own identity issues. I've struggled with the weight and the burdens of everything going on. And I just talked, and it's good that I could share it with you. Thank you for giving me safe space, but that's all I did for quite a while. And I'm sorry, and I want to repent. I want to turn a different direction. It's time to lift each other up again. Where do you find yourself? I mean, are you a left column person or a right column person? You don't have to say it out loud. You probably don't want to, right? <laughs> Are you a left column person? More of the time. And we're not one thing at all times, right? Are you a left column person or more a right column person? Can I tell you something? If you're a right column person, get to the left column quick, please. Can I tell you something else? You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't move from the right column to the left column. Not in my strength. <laughs> I'm not strong enough. I'm not faithful enough. I'm not able. That's why this unity isn't dependent upon me and you. That's why this unity isn't dependent upon the things we feel like or, or want to do. That's why this unity is based upon a unity that exists within the Trinity and is given to us by the Holy Spirit. If you find yourself living more in the right column than the left column, get on your knees and say, Holy Spirit, would you please help move me from the left column to the right column? And that's the prayer you should be praying right now. I find myself, for whatever reason, stuck in these things. And it is not life-giving. It is life-draining. Would you help me? Would you move me over to the left column? The unity Jesus prays for, for us, for his church, for us today, is a unity that is, is growing 
because of love. Fourth thing, it's a unity that's perfected in our faithful witness. It's a unity that is, I'm stealing words from, from Jesus here. That's the best thing to do, steal his words. It's perfected here. Verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. There's a so that. You pay attention to those, right? So that the world may believe that you sent me. I in them and you in me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Or in other words, so they would see our unity and in it see and believe the gospel. We have to be unified because our mission is to hand in hand together to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to carry the gospel, not just the word of salvation, but the word of a whole culture, a whole kingdom where Jesus is king and tears are wiped away and and things that are dead become alive, to take a whole culture into the world and to represent Jesus to everyone around us, to do that not as individuals, but as, as one body. That's our aim. That's our purpose. That is our our big why. And it's very easy to have mission drift as a church, isn't it? It's very easy for us to to be distracted and for our aim, our focus to move. And, And maybe it is, well, there's a cool church, but we're the nice church, right? And our aim is to be the nicest church in town so that when someone meets us, they go, aren't they nice? And that becomes our aim. It becomes the thing that we chase and pursue. Or to have the best kids ministry or the best student ministry or the best worship service or the coolest graphics or whatever. And before we know it, we didn't mean to, but suddenly we went from great commission to we're really nice and have cool art. And that's what we do and who we are. And that does not bring life to the world. It does not take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you, you look at this. And you understand that Jesus wants this unity to exist within the church because of how powerful and beautiful, how awesome a unified church, people who are different, who are unified in Christ as a body together is to a watching world. Think about the Acts 2 church that we studied earlier this year. We'll pick back up again after Easter. Think about them. What what did they have? They had favor among all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Why? Well, it's because they were a people who were continually devoted to, remember those words? To Jesus, to his word, and to each other with their time, with their attention, with their possessions, with their giftings. They were continually devoted to each other, and it says that they had gladness and sincerity of heart about it. It wasn't fate. They didn't just put it on to make themselves or other people feel like this was real. They had gladness and sincerity of heart of sharing their very lives and being devoted to each other. And because of it, the watching world was mesmerized. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Think about that. It's perfected in our faithful witness. There's four things. Four things about the particular unity that Jesus is praying that our church must have. It's found in the Trinity and given by the Spirit. It's fueled by minds set on Christ and guided by His Word. It grows by our choosing love and it's perfected in our faithful witness. Now, I'm over time, but let me four and a half more minutes. Four minutes and 56 seconds. Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's easy. Get that right? Nowhere in the Bible does it say it's not going to be as hard as it is to preserve this kind of unity. It's given to us. We're to fight for it. But there's a lot working against it. And, and we know that that's not new because most of the New Testament, if you read it, you realize it's written to churches that are struggling to stay unified in the midst of cultural issues and fighting within the church, right? Most of the New Testament is written to Christians, written to churches, and big picture, it's how to, be, how to stay one in Christ. That's what it's about. 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, again and again. There are problems existing. It's threatening to divide you. It's being written that you would would be one. And and this is why it's hard. This is why there's challenge. Some of it is because there is always spiritual attack. Would it surprise you to know that the enemies of God do not want churches to live in unity? Right? Of course not. Of course they don't want us to live in unity. At all times, in all seasons, on all places on earth, There is spiritual attack 
against the church having unity. Not just that, but the, you read about it all throughout the New Testament. There are wolves in sheep's clothing that make it difficult to have unity. That means there are people who are among the church who really aren't devoted to Jesus. They don't truly bow before Jesus. Maybe they liked the culture for a minute or the genre or the morals of it, but they really haven't bowed before Jesus. And so they don't have, they're not partakers of the divine nature. And that makes it harder for there to be true unity. And it says often there are warnings that they were, they were like, like us, they looked like us, they were of us, but they went out from us. And it caused all kinds of fractures within the church. There's wolves in sheep's clothing. Not only that, there's always cultural issues that are coming up that are challenging, challenging our unity. They're causing divisions and causing tension because something happens out there and we don't know how to think about it. And our first impulse is to just trust our gut on this stuff and then we start fighting each other. Do you know that churches are so often known more for fighting against each other than doing anything good in this world? Yeah, it's hard to have unity when we're always fighting about culture. Spiritual immaturity that exists. You know, it, it, being in church, uh, you know, 52 Sundays a year for 40 years doesn't make you mature. <laughs> Being in a church service, you know, going to a Bible study, that isn't what makes you mature. What makes you mature is more and more day by day dying to self and trusting Christ so that he is alive in you and doing so with your church, right? That's what makes you mature. I want to remind you, this is where I'll end, of, of where we started in Acts early this year, how before the 13th century, people, church people, would, would never say, I'm going to church, right? Because it wasn't a place. It wasn't a, a thing that you attend. They, the, biblically, church is not a place or a building or a location or an event. It's who we are. It's an identity statement. They wouldn't say, I'm going to church because they wouldn't think that way. They would think, I am the church. We, we are the church. It's a thing that we are together. And together is this key word. It's a very key word. Because it really is, in, in, in so many ways, it is the vital, the vital ingredient in us even beginning to experience unity at all. It's that we're together. And we had a left column and a right column. And some of you may go, well, I'm more of a left column person most of the time. I'm more of a right column most of the time. And the fact is there are some of you, you're like, I'm not on either column. I'm not around these people enough to, to have any relationship with them whatsoever. Maybe I'm in the room, but I've shut myself off, and I don't have relationships, so I'm, I'm really not even a part of that. Maybe, maybe it's a, it is just a place and an event for me, and I've been checking that off, and I felt good about it. Fact is, you can't have unity if you're not on either column at all. <laughs> and I want you to see this um, in Acts 2, this church. The word together comes up over and over again. It's coming to us in three, two, one, boom. See how that works? <laughs> And all of these believers, they met together, they worshiped together, they met in homes together, they're always together. It's not just here. In Acts 2, verse 1, it says that at Pentecost, that they already were together praying, it'll catch up later, that they were already together praying when Pentecost happened. And then, there it is, and then in Acts 20, verse 7, it says, on the first day of the week, they were gathered together, and they were breaking bread, and Paul began to talking to them. This is a way of saying he was preaching, and he was intending to leave the next day. It's my favorite line in the Bible. And he prolonged, bring it back, and he prolonged his message <laughs> until midnight. You think this is a long sermon, y'all? I can go all night. I can go to midnight, right? I'll give you one more. And here it is. So when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. It's one thing to have a little joy if you hear some good news, but to be among a people whom you belong to and hear good news, oh, that's a whole different kind of thing, isn't it? Isn't it? And there are a lot of things that threaten to divide us. And I tell you, experiencing this kind of unity begins when we commit to be together. Um, the first year Lindsay and I dated was long distance. Anyone date long distance ever? Did you ever do that? I was at, at college at Hardin Sims University as a freshman. She was uh, a senior in the high school that we, we grew up in and we went to. And we did a long distance. We started dating the summer before I went to college. And I'm going like, what am I thinking? I'm going to go meet all these girls at college. I'm like, what am I doing here? But she was it and I knew she was it. But I can tell you this, I'll tell you this, had she not decided to join me at Hardin-Simmons and had we only had long distance, we would not have had 20 years of marriage and life together. We just wouldn't have. It wouldn't have worked. We would have had together but not really together. 
it would not have worked long time long term for us we would not have survived the ups and downs of life we would have not survived the challenges if we had not finally been able to come together and that's why hebrews 10 tells us that's why hebrews 10 tells us to not forsake assembling together it's a habit of some i mean it's like it's telegraphing it to 2023 right do not forsake the coming together, which is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of what? Of Jesus' return. I don't know if we're in the end times or not. You can speculate on that. But we're in the spirit of the end times. The spirit of the end times is among us. The attitudes of the end times are among us. And so when culture is turning against everything that would honor the Lord, how much more important is it that we're together? That we're really together. Can I pray for us? Father, I want to thank you for today um, that we have these divine words Jesus spoke them, his disciples eavesdropped and heard them, this prayer. And, and whether Jesus intended this prayer to be a sermon that would be taught 2,000 years later or not, what a joy to find such life and such truth and beauty that our Savior prayed that today we would have a deep and abiding unity. The same kind of stuff that's found within you. And Father, I pray for Legacy Church. Right now, I just, I, I sense in, in my spirit that we're not full of divisions and factions and fighting, but, but we're still lacking a togetherness. In this season, and maybe for many seasons, it's been true. Because we're a church that comes from like 12 cities. We represent 12 cities. We, we have lives in different places. And things have sought to keep us apart. I pray Holy Spirit, I don't have the answers. I don't have five points of application. Would you bind us together? And would you speak to every individual today and in the coming days about what their part in coming together looks like? Would you convict our hearts in the best of ways by inviting us in to be fully alive as a body? Would you grow our unity that we'd experience deeper beauty and power? Would you grow our, our, our unity so that we would have a greater beauty and power displayed to the watching world and it would mesmerize those who watch Legacy Church? Their eyes would be fixed and because they see that, they would see the gospel is true and they would believe. But would you do it through us coming together as the building that you so desire to build? Your church that the gates of Hades could not overcome. In Jesus' name.